try to kill us, but my village too strong. Long live the people. Here we go again with the bullshit you want. Long live the people. We have all these mixed blood people all across the country. We cannot exclude them. There's nothing wrong with being Red River Metis. We are all Metis. There was an attempt to define Metis. And we said no. There's Métis from Red River. What's wrong with Métis from someplace else? And they were also Métis people. Uniting our people is at a very sad state. We are all Métis. Welcome to The Jig Is Up. My name is Darcy, and with me as always is Jason the Professor. How's it going, Jason? Good. How is everything tonight in Cowtown? It is absolutely fantastic. It's beautiful weather, so I can't complain. We're in almost in December, and we have barely any snow, and I think it's like plus four out there right now or something. Nice, and I heard that football team of yours was uh, doing not so well. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really a big CFL guy, but I understand that they choked pretty hard yesterday. So, you know, uh, good team effort, uh, good effort for the season, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not a I'm not a professional sports guy, but Calgary didn't win, so that's okay by me. <laughs> yeah, uh, I wish I followed it maybe sometimes, but I just can't. Um, so anything new going on in the big old metropolis of Whitecourt area? Not tons, other than like you said, the weather is amazingly warm for this time of year. The snow's melting, and uh, you know, still trying to uh, up on our end of things up here in the woods, still just working on uh, securing things for the camp coming up uh, next summer. So, plugging away. Nice. Well, tonight we got a bunch of stuff to go over. Um, so, I'm going to start, and I, hopefully, it kind of all comes together at the end. I don't know, maybe it won't. Um, but where do our rights come from? So, we're Metis, we got rights. You know, we got the right to harvest and things like that. Where do those come from? Are they individual rights? Are they part of a nation collective or a nationhood? Um, I've seen a lot of chit chat on Facebook, of course, always about Métis identity. But the one I'm forgetting the identity issue. The one thing I was interested in is a lot of people seem to be falling in line with the idea that you have no rights unless they come from a nation. And I don't know. What do you think, Jay? That is an interesting conversation. So if we get past the idea that, hey, we've decided you are actually Métis, then what gives you the right to exercise? Or why why would you have a right that would be different from someone else? And I think that's an interesting notion because it boils down to the concept of, of I think, in the modern text, for me anyway, is what is it? what does an, being a nation even really mean? Uh, what qualifiers would we use from which perspective to determine uh, who had a nation, who is a nation, and what makes a nation? And I, I think that is an interesting conversation. Well, I think so too, and I, and I think yeah, you make a good point. Like, what is a nation? I mean, you know, I, I know that we have the cartel who like to call themselves a nation, but I mean, if I go out and put Ford signs on my Chevy, it's still a Chevy. It, you know, can't change that. Um, but in the end of the day, they're still legally and in the eyes of Canada, Canada's legal system, they're nonprofit corporations. That's all they are. So is is that a nation? Is, is that the basis of a nation? Is is land the basis of a nation? Like, a, you know, I mean, if we got to start there, but and then how do your rights flow from a nation and not 
your ancestors. So when we talk about our indigenous rights, our right to harvest and things like this, it's being transformed into a right that's been passed down through the the nation or the Métis nation. So it's like they, they've given you that right because you're part of them. But isn't that... like To me, your rights are your rights, not a collective's rights. I don't know. Well, I think this is the crux of the matter is if we're going to talk about what gives someone, an individual, the you know, inherent or inalienable right to do something, commit an action, whether we want to classify that as harvesting or something as simple as free speech. And I think there's two uh, very different and opposing opinions on this. Um, If we're looking at the colonial mindset, the colonial state says it grants rights. And it it does so because of the whole uh, king or potpourri model of governmental administration. So if you have the right to acquire land, well, that's because all the land belonged to the king, and the king is now letting you buy it from him. Yeah. This is, this is diametrically opposed or transversely opposed to indigenous rights. Indigenous identity and indigenous ability to exercise rights is the fact that we are a people on the land, and that gives us the ability to perform or what we would call exercise certain rights. And I think that's the real dichotomy, for me anyway, of where this split really takes place. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I I got a quote here from uh, Clement Chartier, the president of the MNC, said, Citizenship is the very key for us. That's why leadership is moving citizenship, because it's only citizens of the nation that have the rights of that community. Our rights are based on being Métis, not based on being part Indian, part this, part that. It's based on our nationhood. Uh, I I really have a problem with that. Um, but it's hard to kind of pinpoint. I mean, I, I have a part. I have a problem with that just simply because it's like erasing the fact that we are a mixed breed people, um, which seems to be their their I- idea of what to do with Métis identity and all this stuff is just erase that part of you. So you're not part Cree. You're Métis, and the Cree has nothing to do with you. But you can't be Métis. You know, Métis back in the day were mixed mixed blood. So it, it's like it's like throwing away part of your identity. I think part of your ancestry. Uh, it, like, is that how you feel about it? I don't know. Well, for me, it's a very political move because it's saying who has the ability, or from where does an individual or people assert um, a national nationality as an independence distinct people and b uh who then determines the uh ability of the those defined people then to exercise a specific right and this is what i was saying before this goes right back to a very colonial mindset is that without a political um, administration or a political cohesiveness of a people then there's no right and so people are aimless, people, you know, act out, they may do certain things, but that's not their right. Only people who are citizens within the construct of nationality, as it's a political term, have that right. And I think where this really strains is in the historical, historical context of peoplehood, even outside North America. It's then to say that people like the Picts in Scotland, uh, the Gales and the Celts were never really a nation. 
and therefore never really had any inherent right uh, to the lands they lived on because they never had a king, they never had a government, they never had administration. They were just these people that lived on the land. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of how I, like, I, I really see this as a very colonial mindset of we at the top are going to grant you rights. And it's kind of the same thing where, you know, you're not Métis unless we determine you're Métis. You're not anything until we determine you are. But, you know, you, you go to Métis communities and you say, well, where does your identity flow from? And it, it never is, you know, oh, it's the organization in Edmonton that tells us who we are. Like, that's, I've never met, you know, well, I've, I guess I have met Métis, but I haven't gone into Métis communities where that, where they just go, oh, well, you know, the MNA is the one who decided I was Métis. Like, so you're, you're Métis because of your ancestry, but your rights come from a, an organization in Edmonton, in our case. So how did, like, that seems like a weird split. Um, so they're asking you to prove your history to a Métis ancestor, but your your rights don't flow have or have anything to do with that ancestor. Well, then why do I have to prove my rights to that ancestor? You, you know what well, I mean? And I, yeah, and I think this is the real problem when we're talking about this, and I think this is where the MNC is really starting to show their true colors, in that by removing uh, any Métis connection to a First Nation uh, person in your family tree, what the MNC is setting itself up to do is really go head-to-head with First Nations communities about uh, land and land governance um, in what First Nations would say is their traditional territory and what the MNC is now going to put forward as, um, and what they have been putting forward as the Métis National Homeland. And so we really have the MNC laying over top of First Nation traditional territory, a Métis map, of the Métis Nation's national uh, jurisdiction for governance. And so we really, as as individual Indigenous people, have to ask ourselves then when we're actually physically standing on the land, who has right to it as an Indigenous person? Well, that's just right. And and I, it just, it, it seems so wrong to me to, to go against other Indigenous um, just because we want to be our own like we, you know, people make up a nation, and and I think we're giving way too much power to these organizations. It just, it seems wrong to go against all the other indigenous just so that we can fight this fight of of what I don't even know. Um, apparently, land that we don't have, and I'm, you know, I guess the government's going to give us a whole bunch of land just out of the goodness of their heart. I don't know, but it just seems very wrong to fight against other indigenous groups when we should be working together, in my mind. But maybe I'm from a totally well, different perspective, I guess. Well, I mean, hey, I can be off the deep end on this too. But from my perspective, uh, as an Indigenous person, and, and who's who I believe my identity comes from the land, is that uh, if you, if from my perspective, Métis people have coexisted within the traditional territories of every First Nations uh, community that we live within. There's, uh, I mean, Métis people have a few bad relations uh, due to territorial territorial jurisdictions um, and sovereignty issues. You know, you look at the, the Métis people coming across and, and running into the Black Book Confederacy, there's some animosity there, to be sure. But the reality is, I don't I don't historically find anywhere where Métis people carved out this huge swath 
of self-governing autonomous land that was not Cree land, that was not the Blackfoot Confederacy land, that was not Anishinaabe land. It was just solely the property and jurisdiction of the Métis people. I, I just don't, that's not historically accurate. Well, well, no, and when I look at uh, the, the way First Nations, um, you know, were with other people, I mean, I can only speak to my experience here in, in Blackfoot Territory, but we have several different uh, nations here in Black made, that make up the Blackfoot Confederacy, uh, but there's no doubt this was traditional Blackfoot Territory, yet you have Dene living on it, um, you have uh, Sioux living on it, uh, you know, so it, 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 but does, so does that make then... So if the if the Dene showed up after the Blackfoot, do the Dene now own all the land? And then if the Métis showed up after that, do we own all the land? But then Canada showed up, so then they own all the land. Like, it's a very colonized viewpoint. I mean, um, you know, First Nations aren't fighting with each other uh, about, you know, which re- reservation is is the predominant one and should be the most important one and... They're not having these fights uh, over over uh, you know rights. Their rights come from the land, is the way they see it. And and for me, that seems to be a very logical thing to say. If you're, you know, we've always in my, my mind, Métis people are people of the land, just like our indigenous uh, relatives, our First Nations and Inuit relatives. So, like my rights come from from that. They flow through me from my ancestors and and everything they had to do to get me here today. And not so much from a collective of a non-profit organization that was formed under a colonized government. Uh, I don't know. It seems weird to me. Well, and I think that's the whole point of the conversation is the Métis National Council believe they're, believes that they're the successor organization uh, to the Manitoba Act signing, of which they, you know, many of the academics who support that point of view call that the, you know, the high water mark of uh, the the treaty. They call it signed between uh, the government of Canada and the Métis people in Manitoba under the Manitoba Act. Even if you want to say that's true, and we want to make the argument from that point of view that Métis people are indeed treaty people, that only puts us on equal footing with every First Nations. Yeah. So that, and this is where unity should come in, to my mind, is that we're all treaty people. Is so it doesn't matter if you're in the Blackfoot Confederacy. It doesn't matter if you're up here in White Court, uh, or you know in in the Alexis Sioux and Cree area. It doesn't matter where you are. We we coexist as Indigenous people, and therefore we have the same claim and the same Indigenous right. But it's an equal and coexisting right. I just don't see the Métis National Council, their perspective that they're entitled to large swaths of land uh, in another nation's uh, traditional territory without any consultation, that the only consultation they have to have is from the government. I mean, this to me totally smacks of some kind of colonial uh, mindset is that then, then indeed what the MNC is saying is that treaties really were about the surrender of First Nations lands, and therefore they are in the possession of the federal government to give out to whoever they want, and that's how it really works. Yeah. That's really, to me, what, what the MNC is saying, is that treaties are about the surrender of land. The, the federal, Crown land is truly land owned by the federal government, and the federal government can it then owes the Métis Nation its land back. 
Well, and it's interesting because, okay, let's say from that is absolutely true. Let's let's pretend that for five minutes here. And, um, okay, so the the government owes the Métis Nation land. So let's say I'm part of this Métis Nation. I get ticked off, and I, I want to go start my own group. Well, now I'm not Métis. I have no rights anymore. Well, what if I go start my own nation? I can go start a, a non-profit corporation, call it uh, the Super Métis Nation, of the planet, and uh, what's to stop me from now saying I have rights? But according to the Métis Nation, I would have no rights anymore, and I have no claim to being Métis, really, because I'm not part of the nation again anymore. So I get, you know, and, that, and then you look at, like, Christy Belcour, who asked to have her name removed from the registry and her daughter's name. So she's not Métis. She has no rights anymore. She has no right to be on the land and harvest. She has no right to do any of these things. Because she's not part of the nation. So she's just, uh, what, mixed blood of something-something? So this whole thing gets very cloudy when you actually start saying, okay, well, what happens if? And, it, you know, <laughs> very simple things like somebody leaves the nation, they completely cease being that person and their entire identity is removed from them? It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me that way. Well, and that, and that really is the where the true colors of the MNC in this conversation when they come to light is, even if you carry that conversation a little bit further. So we've already seen that in the last 10 years, the uh, every uh, Métis National Council and the cartel has reviewed its membership. It has disenrolled members. Uh, we see in Ontario that they're going to be disenrolling more members. So, for instance, if they already had land, if you already had all the rights that you could possibly imagine as a Métis person under the cartel, the minute you're disenrolled, it's basically the equivalent of, of losing your Canadian citizenship and being deported. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And saying, well, I, I don't care how long you thought you were in Canada, you are no longer belong here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like it's... They they want to use these big words like nation and citizenship and blah, 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 but they, they don't want to back it up with solid foundation of what that means. You can't just, you know, because I don't like Joe, I'm going to take his citizenship away. You know, you can't have these kinds of things. I mean, it, you know, we said this before, but when was the last time Canada did a complete citizenship review of all of its citizens in it, that it has? I'm going to guess and say probably never in its 150-year history. So how do you have a citizenship review? How do you do these things? If you want to call yourself a nation, then you have to act like one. You have to you have to put rules in place uh, to be a nation. I mean, you have to have something that signifies you're a nation. But what these people have is a name, like a legal name for a, a nonprofit corporation, and have convinced people that they are the governing nationhood, and the people themselves are nothing without the nation. Wherein in the reality is it's the exact opposite way around. That nation wouldn't even exist if people, if everybody disenrolled, they would close up their doors and pack up because they'd get no more funding. So what kind of nation is that? I don't, I don't know a country in the world where, you know, if, if, as people leave, they, they have to f close down programs because, you know, there, there's just nobody, everybody's left all at once. Like it, it's just a craziness that I can't understand how people get sucked into it. But Well, and I think this is what, what uh, I hope through our podcast and through other sources that people are finally waking up to is that these organizations are claiming a lot and delivering very little. 
and uh, you know as we work to help communities become independent of the uh, the cartel structure i think this is where the the very notion of where do your rights flow from really crumbles because it flows from community all you have to do is go to community all you have to do is go and visit the land where community really lives and you'll find out right away who's in charge and uh, where your rights really are intrinsically flowing from and i think is as that we make this shift and as people will, you know, wake up from the, the delusion of what's being propagated as, as Métis identity and where who controls your rights, you know, I think that's where the, the whole egg starts to crack and Humpty Dumpty's going to fall off the wall. <laughs> that's a really good analogy. I, I went straight to visual on that, so that was, that was <laughs> awesome, by the way. So let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about um, the government doing the right thing. Um, so, uh, you know, the government, the MMF, is, it has come out and, and uh, our, our friend, friendly neighbor there has said that they, they're sure that the government will do the right thing and give us compensation for 60 Scoop. Uh, and I, 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 it came out of an article where uh, it said, the pressure is mounting on the federal liberals to compensate Métis people who were taken from their families in the 60 Scoop after they were excluded from the $800 million settlement last month. But the president of the Manitoba Métis Federation said he has faith that Ottawa will follow through after a solemn meeting with the minister handling the issue. Carolyn Bennett's office hinted Friday that Ottawa will still negotiate or still has to negotiate an end to the existing lawsuits filed exclusively by, by First Nations people before they can in, before including other people in the compensation package. It's unclear whether Métis people have to go through courts to be included. In response to a question about whether the province will consider voluntarily compensating Métis people for Manitoba's role in the 60 Scoop, the province of Manitoba, said no lawsuit has been filed against it. So uh, this will, I, I hopefully, hopefully we'll tie these two topics together in a bit here, but so the, I just think it's really funny that the president of the Manitoba Métis Federation has faith in, in the government that they're just going to give us money. And... You know, Ottawa has come to them and said, oh, no, we will. We just have to settle every single other lawsuit ahead of time. Well, I think there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 30 lawsuits I read. And given that most lawsuits don't end in like the first, you know, in within 30 to 60 days, 25 lawsuits is a substantial amount of time. And I guess what are they doing in the meantime? So... The province of Manitoba's response was, well, there's no been no lawsuit filed, so why would we compensate anybody? So essentially they're saying, screw you, sue us. Has the Manitoba Métis Federation launched a lawsuit? No. Have they put up other any, any other indication of a fight other than sending a letter to Carolyn Bennett? No. So they're sitting back and waiting. Uh, do, you, do you have a lot of faith, Jason, that you're gonna, we're gonna, Métis uh, sixty scoop survivors are gonna see a big check in the next uh, three years? Yeah, right. No, <laughs> I don't. Um, I, I mean, let's be honest. This is a, another excellent visual. It should be another drastic wake up call. How the government uses identity politics against Indigenous people. How how is this whole division over compensation? Uh, for First Nations people versus Métis people, any different than who got treaty. You know, yeah, uh, First Nations people get treaty, Métis people are kicked out. 
and told to sit on the curb until, you know, what, sometime later. Well, how did that work out when we were all living on the roadside allowance? Yeah. Well, well, I I just don't understand when these organizations are going to get a clue and, and, and sit down and get to the table on these issues. Well, that's just it. Like they're so proud of the fact that they have, you know, the prime minister calling them personally on their, on their bedside phone, but they're not raising these issues with the government. Like we're sitting around hoping one day that the government will give us a bunch, some TRC money. That's never going to happen. And I can almost guarantee you this 60 scoop thing ain't going to happen without a bunch of lawsuits. Who's launching the lawsuits? Nobody. It's going to be up to individual Métis people to launch a lawsuit, spend the next 15 to 20 years fighting it, eventually win in court, and when they win, there's that's when the MNC and the MMF will be there on the steps of the courthouse, raising their fists in glory as though they had some massive role in this major victory for Métis people when they had nothing to do with it. And I think it's just downright sad when it even took a lot of phone calls to the MMF to even get this guy to write a letter. To even stand up and do anything took a lot of phone calls to the, to the, his office. So, <laughs> you again, we go back to this idea of nationhood. Um, you know, most nations who, it, let's say they have a leader... That leader should be the one fighting for the people. Um, You know, love them or hate them, we have premiers in this province that go around and try to drum up business for their province. They go on tour and they, you know, all these kinds of things. And Rachel Notley does her pipeline tour and tries to drum up business for the the pipelines and things like that. The purpose of that is not because, um, you know, there's some mounting pressure to do blah, blah, blah. It's because that's her job is to go around and promote her, her province. These guys just sit around and wait and hopefully, and just, I guess, hope the government gives them a bunch of money. I, it just baffles me. How can you be a nation when you don't do anything nation like? I don't know. Well, it, it, it's very frustrating. We see all the time. So here we have the government say, well, First Nations people have launched lawsuits, and so Métis people haven't, and we're out in the cold. Well, there's the first failure of any kind of representative organization who's on behalf of of Métis people for that. And so we had First Nations communities, and we had First Nations leadership there to stand up and make sure that people were being respected. And on the Métis side of things, clearly not so much. Yeah. and here we have this this whole point, I think, is is you hit the nail right on the head. It's historically, uh, we've had the, the Métis National Council and the Métis, especially in Alberta, the Métis Nation of Alberta, have been around for a very long time. And yet we look historically at uh, any what we would call a court case win for the Métis people. Uh, Pauly, uh, he wasn't any member of the Métis Nation at all. Um, Harry Daniels wasn't a Métis Nation member. So according to the Métis Nation itself, non-Métis people of non-Métis ancestry who were just mixed were winning huge, victorious cases in court for Métis people. Yeah. Well, how how exactly is that? How does that work? Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, how how are we going to get justice for Métis people who've been now kicked back to the roadside allowance by the the federal government. You know, how long do we got to now wait in this, you know, legal purgatory 
before compensation is done. And I'll be quite honest, my greatest fear is, is that when compensation does come, this organization, which has a long record of uh, financial mismanagement, is going to be at the forefront to the, be the administrative body for the disbursement of funds to Métis people. Well, exactly. Exactly. I mean, that is a huge fear for me, too. Is And then it's going to be, you know, how they determine whether or not you get it. And, you know, it, it'll be another tool, in my opinion, on how they manipulate people and how they get people to fall in line. It'll be, well, you can get your money, but you have to follow our rules and play by our, our, play our game. And, uh, it, it, like, it's not fair. It's not... It's not right. Well, I mean, it's one more fraudulent, uh, you know, crime committed against the Métis people, perpetrated by a government-funded organization to make people feel like they don't have a choice but to support these organizations. And these organizations can then turn around and say to the people, "See benefits flow from us. You want." You know, if money is going to be coming from the government, see, that flows from us. If there's going to be lands coming, it's because the lands are granted to the nation, and the nation then doles them out to the Métis people. Yeah. Well, that very notion just drives me around the big bend because that's exactly what it was like in England long ago. You know, you can't hunt the king's deer unless the king says. You can't live on the king's land unless the king says. And that's exactly where this organization is taking Métis people. No, absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. It's uh, and it's just really sad. I mean, and they're they're playing with things like the sixty scoop and the and residential schools, as though these are, and and this truly is my opinion. I don't really sense any type of sincerity, or urgent desire to see resolution for these things. Every once in a while, they'll stand up and you know throw their arms up and wow, we're not going to support that because we were left out of the TRC and they'll walk away. And you won't hear anything about it for another year until it's another convenient time. And and it, it just drives me crazy because, you know, you're, you're, you're screwing with people's lives here. You're screwing with people that suffered trauma after trauma after trauma. And you're not even getting in the ring and fighting for them. You're not even in the stadium watching the fight. You're standing outside hoping that somebody's going to bring you half a bag of popcorn. Like, it's just infuriating. And I don't understand... Why more people in these organizations aren't pissed off? Because it's—I it, don't see what these organizations do for anybody, and it drives me crazy. It just drives me totally crazy. Well, and it just boils down to the fact that, like, I just—I'm not very confident that there is leadership in these organizations that is going to go to bat for the little guy. I mean, it doesn't take much driving around to either, you know, urban centers or some of our more rural Métis people to see some of the desperate living conditions our people are in and some of the financial woes they suffer, um, the unemployment, uh, the housing. And then you look at the fact that we've had people who've suffered unspeakable traumas through the whole 60-scoop process. And on all of these issues, uh, these organizations are silent they're not there and there definitely isn't any money forthcoming yeah. and so i really i really wonder at the end of the day if you have that piece of plastic in your pocket why are you letting your voice be used to further marginalize everyone yeah absolutely um so we're going to 
The next thing I wanted to kind of get into here, um, now that we've kind of put those two to bed for a minute, is just, Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould said the Liberal government's going to back a bill that I think was put forth by Romeo Saganash of the NDP that calls for it calls for full implementation of the United Nations declarations of the rights of Indigenous people um, in into Canadian law. And it's a move that could have wide-ranging consequences in Canadian law. And we're going to tie this back to what we were talking about in the last two topics, just simply in the fact that, you know, it's my belief that all of these cartel organizations that we talk about, and the MNA and, and all of them, are absolutely in violation of the United Nations rights, Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. So I'm very curious to see how they're going to implement things in UNDRIP uh, that would then cause organizations like these to be actually breaking the law at that point. Um, so I know I, I mean ha, I'm gonna I have some of the articles here that I of the UNDRIP that I think they're violating. But I mean, what do you think of that of bringing UNDRIP into Canadian law, Jason? Well, when I'm a little bit leery, leery of that statement right off of the hop, I think the Liberal government's made it very clear they want to bring the. Uh, it into law but they want to do it within the framework of the canadian law and i think that's the real challenge with the whole process so they're saying yeah we want you know we want to recognize all the the indigenous rights but we want to do within the current framework and they're struggling even now And and we see the real struggle i mean we can't get rid of sexism in the indian act we can't get rid of the indian act um we're not going to be able to force the crown to live up to their you know fundamental treaty obligations so I really see that this is going to be, it's a, I think it's a good notion. I would love to see them just unilaterally implement it. I just don't see that without the House of Cards falling on the Canadian state side, I don't know how they'd ever pull it off. Well, you know, I, I really see these as, um, this one especially, I, I see this as almost like the Liberal government just giving up and putting lip service to things like, they had to kind of finally give up and say, you know what, fine, we'll just go with what the Senate put forward to get rid of sexism in the Indian Act. Kind of like this where they're going, you know, we, we said we'd bring in, we'd implement the 94 calls to action of the TRC. We said we'd bring in the U, UNDRIP, and we have no idea how, but okay, fine, we're going we're gonna to support his, this guy's bill now that we didn't support before. Yeah, sounds good. And so I, to me, it seems like really a lot of lip service. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you look at the Daniels case. The Daniels case is well over a year old now. And what movement have we seen as far as any law changing, any act being put in place, any any implementation? I mean, the government still goes, well, you, you know, you got to pass Powley. you got to do this. It's all about Powley. They They're not saying, oh, you have to pass Daniels. You have to, well, we have to worry about the Daniels case. They, I, in my opinion, honestly, I, I think they're literally doing nothing. I think they're pretending that the Daniels case never happened, and they're calling it good. Um, so with these, yeah, it's great to say that, but again, like you said, what does that mean? I mean, you can't implement it, but then modify it and say, well, no, it's got to fit Canadian law. Well, then, <laughs> and then you're just writing laws for no purpose. Because um, here are some articles that I think are, are should stand out for people. Um Article 3 says Indigenous people have the right to self-determination. By virtue of that right, they freely determine their political status, freely pursue their economics, social, and cultural development. So let's let's look at just that one. 
and I have a couple others here, but let's look at just that one. So by virtue of self-determination, we can freely determine our political status. So all of these nation cartel organizations, well, they're done. Because if I choose to not have them as my political representative, and they say, no, then you lose all your rights. Well, that, if this was a law, that would be illegal. I mean, it should be legal now, but, you know, would, would they not be violating that right by having, by saying, no, I can't freely determine my political status? Oh, exactly. And then you look at, over on the uh, AFN side of things, all the different communities that are trying to go to traditional governance but are totally pinned down by, by the feds on that, that whole thing would be thrown out. How many band, uh, bands would be dissolved? How many chief and council would be out on their ear in, the, in a heartbeat? Yeah. Be, because of that legislation. And so the AFN in itself would crumble from within. The uh, You can't have a, a, a fun, government-funded representative organization if Métis people are totally free to form whatever form of representation that they want. Exactly. Yeah. And and I think that's that's the whole point of why this is uh, never going to happen in any kind of framework. I think what we're really going to see, and, and that's the whole point, these guys are in violation under that act. So how would that become in, how, how would that become law? Yeah, like they're already in violating it. So how does it, yeah, exactly. How does it become law? You're going to write a law knowing that these organizations are breaking it? I don't think so. Well, more to the point, the government funds these organizations. So the government itself, by writing this law, has to immediately stop. It has to put the money aside and allow for every community and nation to reestablish, reaffirm its you know, own governance and then what? Apply for that money that that the chief and council are getting right now? Is the government just going to write a blank check to every community? You know, is organizations like ours who do represent the community level, if we get if we get that, can we just then apply to that for the M&A's money? Yeah, exactly. Like this just that's just a you know I mean it's a shit show. I don't know how that would even work. <laughs> well, and and then on top of that, okay, so let's say. Let's let's say that happened. Well, let's say here in Alberta, you had four different groups spring up, and every province had three or four different groups spring up, just on the Métis side of things. You know, I don't like Joe. I'm leaving his organization. I'm going to go start my own. And then you just you have these fragmented organizations. Is the government really going to negotiate on a nation to nation level on it with every single one of them? Uh, I mean, pretty soon you'd have just as many Métis groups as there are First Nations um, out there. You know, so is the government really going to be cool with letting that happen? Because right now they're happy with dealing with like six. They're not going to want to go to like 600. So, <laughs> well, you know. And, and, but on, on, the, on the flip side of that, to flip that around, on some ways I think they'd be happy because they would be tied up in endless bureaucracy, endless discussions, yeah, endless committees that never went anywhere because you could form 600 representatives on the government side to talk to 600 Métis communities to to finally find a way to terminate their rights in a 20-year negotiated process. And so we'd all be dead and long in our graves before anything ever happened. And the government can continue on with the status quo. Yeah, the wells get drilled, the resource development happens, you know. Yeah. Everybody's good. So on one hand, yeah, I think it would cause a shit show. But at the same time, you know what, that might play right into the government's hands. We're also broke up fighting over our own little community rights that – the government can just carry on carrying on. Yeah, well, that's true too. Yeah. Um, 
So Article 8 in there says, Indigenous peoples and individuals have the right not to be subjected to forced assimilation or destruction of their culture. And this one stands out for me, and, and the next one stands out for me, because of this whole Métis identity um, discussion, or debate, argument, about Eastern and Western Métis. So if Eastern Métis claim an identity, then they claim that. You can't you can't deny that. Um and you can't, you know, by forcing people into your organization, that's forced assimilation. So again, this is, we've gone from Article 3 to Article 8, and this is only a portion of Article 8, because Article 8 also states uh, that the state, of which is Canada, shall provide effective mechanisms for prevention of and redress for any action which has the aim or effect of depriving them of their integrity as distinct peoples of or their, of their cultural values or ethnic identities, uh, any form of forced assimilation or integration, any form of propaganda designed to promote or incite racial or ethnic discrimination directed against them. So that means that the government of Canada has to come up with prevention mechanisms and redress mechanisms to deal with people complaining about Dr. Daryl LaRue, who's not Métis, spreading propaganda that there's no Eastern Métis. Well, now he's violating the law. These other organizations are also violating the law now because they're saying you're not Métis in the East and they're depriving us of our, of our identity and our cultural values and ethnic identities. So, And they're forcing us to assimilate into either Canadian state or you know, Métis nation state. And uh, so it's things like these. I, 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 don't, I just don't see this happening right away. I mean, this is way too complicated. And I mean, these. I'm only in Article Eight. <laughs> There's a and, lot and of articles. That, exactly. I think that. I mean, just those two articles alone, in the in the Métis context, opens such a can of worms. Um, if you want to talk about uh, forced assimilation in Alberta, we have the whole concept of the uh, punitive measures by which Pali's been introduced, and the Alberta government has a 1900. Uh, the year 1900 is a cutoff for proving you're a Pali uh, assertive community which Alberta wasn't even a province until 1905. So, And then on top of that, you're saying, so Métis people, which by definition were highly mobile, um, very transient in our location, under Powley in Alberta, you're restricted to 160-kilometer radius of your home community. Well, is that forced assimilation? Yeah, very good point. By saying, by saying well, we Métis, we always moved about. Yeah. We always were mobile. We were always shifting our position and so now if I'm uh, from the community of Lac St. Anne and I want to go move to Lac La Biche because maybe I got married and my wife's kin is up there, well, my rights are now gone. My ability to exercise my rights are gone because now I moved from my traditional community in Lac La Biche, I mean Lac St. Anne, to go up to Lac La Biche. Yeah. Well, that's forced assimilation because Métis people move all the time. Yeah, absolutely. So something just as simple as mobility. Um, is being forced assimilation to treat Métis people as as uh, exactly the same as First Nations people with home territory, who never really, you know, who migrated, but within typically a, a static boundary position. Yeah. Where we had Métis people moving right from Quebec right out to Jasper here. So, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. 
No, I think it, it it proves to be a very difficult thing just to implement Undrip and, you know, call it a good day. I mean, like, I would love to see Undrip implemented. Hell, I'd love to see just parts of it implemented. If we, I mean, that's a step forward. But One through eight would be a great start. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? Um, but, you know, this again, this ties back, though, to, uh, you know, what is a nation? What is all the, where do our rights flow? And, and this is why I kind of wanted to, to speed through these a little bit tonight um, and jump through them, was because it, tied, it, it all kind of does tie back to being what is a nation. And when you look at the global stage today, um, you know, it, what, is, like, what is a nation as a globe in the world today? What is a nation within Canada or, you know, on, on this land? And so if you have a nation that's in violation of the United Nations rights, Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People, is that, is that really a nation then? Or is it just a nonprofit corporation who sets their own rules? Is it a nation if uh, they're not even recognized at the United Nations as a nation because they have no lands base, they have no nothing? Um, so is, is that a nation? Or do we have to get recognized by the UN? Um, does Canada have to give up Canadian soil to give to these people and, and then we'll and give, you know, to Métis people and we'll be, then we'll be a nation? Like, so where does this all sit? I mean, it's, it's a huge big bowl of soup, but it, does it actually taste good? I don't know. Well, then I think that's the problem is, um, the definition of a nation and whose definition do we want to use? Are we using a European's idea of a nation, a nation, are we using our indigenous, you know, traditional ideas of we the people? You know, you look at every word that we use, you know, Anishinaabe, and the words we use to describe ourselves as people. You know, we we viewed ourselves as a nation, as confederacies, but not in the same context as Europeans. Um, we have our own forms and and self forms of governance and laws and traditional systems that determine where people and i think this is the real challenge that i have um is that the mating national council and its affiliates don't really represent anything traditional it represents something very colonial yeah in its hierarchical structure its delegation of powers and even even its verbiage that he uses for the delegation and uh, of rights and who can exercise them citizenship these are not ideas that come from uh, you know a, a land-based governance system this comes from a you know a top-down you know what I call the king or the potpourri type of system oh yeah absolutely absolutely and and I think that's you know that's just it right there there it's a very colonized way of running a nation um, there's there's really nothing about these organizations other than the people that make them a nation. I mean, you know, they don't have their own police, their own land, their own tax system, their own hospitals, health care. Uh, they don't have their own really anything uh, that, that would, that, you know, in the modern world today that you would consider being a nation. Um, they don't have their own social structures to take care of the, the, the poor, the sick, the needy. Um, you know, we, we don't, we don't even have our own places of worship. We don't have our own, um, you know, places within all the provinces that they call the homeland. Where can you go and, and just hang out with other Métis people in a Métis building? I mean, so there's a lot of these things that they, they, they just don't, 
don't have, but they call themselves a nation. And, you know, I would never, I don't feel so, I guess, so much ego that I would ever call an organization I belong to a nation. I would call the people of that organization a nation of people. But uh, when you're talking about organizations that are under the umbrella of Canada's corporate legal system, I, I don't think that constitutes a nation. People do. Nonprofit corporations, I don't think, do. <laughs> uh. And I think that's really the point. I think they're, the Métis are people. They're, there's just over 500,000 Métis people. We're a proud people. We have a, a proud history. We have a shared history in this land. We uh, share this land with other Indigenous people. But as far as a nation, a sovereign, independent thing that we talk about as nation-to-nation nation that the MNC talks about, I don't think that's accurate. That doesn't negate our sovereignty, that our ability to be sovereign, to be self-governing, and to be a people. I think they're just very different concepts. And I think this is the problem when we apply this to identity. And especially it gets very muddled when we're talking about the administration of what is, by definition, an inherent right of an Indigenous person. Um, and so I think this is where people get muddled and I think they get confused. Uh, especially when you're looking at things from a very colonial background and perspective. Uh, we are a people, and we should be proud of that fact. And we should exercise all the rights and privileges that come with being that kind of a people. As far as a nation, we have to work towards that before we have it. Yeah. No, absolutely. I uh, I couldn't agree more. I think those are some, some great final comments. Uh, I don't know. Is there anything else you wanted to add to that, Jason? No, I think that's great. I think, I mean, it, it, we talk about this quite a bit, but I mean, it, obviously it's a hot topic. It keeps coming up in the feed all the time. Um, we've seen huge threads started on several Facebook groups with hundreds of comments um, over the last several weeks about identity and rights and where they come from and who's entitled and who's not and what makes someone Métis and what's not and yada, 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 and arguments based on geography. And so I think it's occupying a lot of people's time it clearly occupies a lot of, of uh, passion in in people's hearts, and I think it's important to to, to be able to hash it out. Absolutely, and and I think these are healthy. Dis- I mean, they can be healthy discussions to have. I think on, sometimes online they turn into not so healthy, but uh, you, you know, we we sure, certainly should as as a people. I think we certainly sh- should be questioning uh, all of these things, um, and. I, I just don't think we should be blindly following the edict of, you know, a corporate board or anybody else. Uh, we should be finding these other things out for ourselves. And I, and I, you know, earlier you said, uh, you know, this, you know, stems from community. And if you go back to community, you'll know where your rights flow, flow from. And I think where that's where a lot of this for me comes down to is that, you know, this, it boils down to communities. The communities are what make, you know, people strong and people know where they're from. And, uh, you know, but there again, everybody's idea of what a community is is very different. And, um, you know, here in Calgary, we have communities within communities within communities. So it, it, it's very subjective to a certain point. But, um, you know, I, I, I know it's a very hot point, and I hope that uh, I hope people keep discussing it, you know, respectfully. Um, because we, we definitely need to have these conversations. We need to hash this stuff out so that, you know, when, when we are talking to the government, 
we know what we're talking about and we have a clear goal of what we want. And I think that's uh, that's something that's very important. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's the whole point that we have to come to to understand is that no federal organization, Métis or otherwise, has the right to dictate to people living in a community uh, their identity, who, who can participate and who doesn't. If we're truly Indigenous to the land, then the people on the land have to be respected in the place that they're living. Um, you know, they've lived there for generations. How could I possibly go to Quebec, Manitoba, Northern Saskatchewan, go to a community and determine for them who has a valid claim to, to that identity and who doesn't? And I think this is a real conversation we need to take respect for, especially going back to things like the 60 scoop. We have so much forced trauma, adoption, and all these other things that come into play. We have to be very sensitive to issues when we're talking about uh, a corporate viewpoint and restrictive viewpoint in the delegation of rights and things you know terminology like citizenship and who can be part of the community and the part of the nation and who can't absolutely absolutely uh i wanted to just say one more thing here um i today was uh, kind of a well it was a historic day for lgbtq2 plus rights and well i guess not rights but for for people that fall within that spectrum or identify that way uh, you know, hey, you know, the government came out and did a, a big apology, and I hope that those words have a lot of value. And I hope, uh, you know, the people within the Métis community that identify along those, with any of those letters, I hope you guys, um, you know, I hope that apology meant something. And I hope that the federal government follows up with that apology and does what the, you know, does the right thing. So congratulations on the apology. I hope that... Uh, you know, I hope that made feel. I hope it made people feel a little bit better. And I know there was a lot of trauma foisted upon them. You know, even as well, he's still today. But going back to the '90s and '80s, that they were apologizing for. So, um, absolutely. And I mean, that's it's it, uh, like in with all things that the government's doing. I'm I'm very happy to see that the finally there's some recognition of of the past and the present. Um, like all of these apologies, I sure hope it's followed up with some some real action and towards good measures for the future. It absolutely, and and I think I, I will have to say the one thing that I did really think was a good move by the government was to push a bill into the the House of Commons to uh, expunge the criminal records of anybody that's been convicted of you know these crimes that, that as they were back in the day. Uh, I think that's honestly, I think that's a huge step. I think that's a big thing to just show that hey, we're we're dead serious. You know, we apologize, and people need to move on, be able to move on with their lives without this being something that holds them back, uh, a criminal charge for being who you are. So I think it's a it's a great thing. It's a great bill. I hope and I'm sure it'll pass because uh, it's first past the post. So you know, majority rules. Um, but I, I think the whole thing was really good. It's commendable that they, they did it, and I'm, I'm glad that they did it, and I hope that all of our Métis, LGBTQ2+, people um, feel a little bit of recognition and, and some sort of resolution from it. Um, and then I, I hope moving forward we can start putting an end to some of the, the hate against against them as, an, as people as well. So. Absolutely, yeah. So that's all I got, Jason. I don't know if there's anything you got left to add. Not a whole bunch. Um, just a little bit on uh, on the support side. Christmas is coming up, and uh, you know we're working to uh, support different ventures. We got uh, a few things for sale on both our website, and of course, we, you know we hope people will look at our merchandise on our camp 
uh, webpage because every dollar that uh, we can raise goes towards uh, providing those space for youth, especially in the coming year. So if you got a little bit of Christmas money you want to spend and you want to throw it our way, I know uh, ourselves and all the kids that we can get to camp would greatly appreciate it. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we have a lot of shirts and stuff up there. And, guys, the shirts really are great quality shirts. Um, they're really printed nicely. They they stand up. They last. Um, so, you know, they're comfortable. So head over and check it out. And, and yeah, like Jason said, support us. It's, it'd be really appreciated. And, uh, yeah, on that note, I think that's it. Until next week, the jig is up. Long live the peak. Hey. My late cooking came from Kawaka to express. Real warrior woman probably popping loose dead. It's poor man's if you wanna talk that language. A hundred clicks north if RG is the rest. You still gotta be a chief to wear a headdress. So take your shit off before you.